Colossians chapter 3. We've been working through this summer Paul's letter to the church of the Colossians. And we are in chapter 3 this morning. Once I figure out where I put my sermon notes, I would ask anybody, is there a black binder? Randy's got it, thanks. <laughs> We're about to have either, it was going to either be a very short sermon or an extremely long one. I'll be reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. You know, it is amazing to me how what we, um, what we focus on, what we are drawn to, where our attention turns, can really set our course and determine our experience and even our behavior. And I'm reminded of this when I go on nature hikes with my children. You know, one of my children is uh, very adept at spotting flowers or anything with color. And so we'll be on a hike and she will say, Daddy, do you see that flower? No. I don't. Well, it's way over there. And what doesn't even show up on my radar is the one thing she's looking for and she sees. Or we'll be in the middle of a hike and I'll suddenly find my son is like 10 yards off into the bushes because he saw a snake or a lizard or a frog that I never would have seen in all of that camouflage and that brush. But that's what his radar is set on finding, and he sees things I would never see, and it changes his course. Meanwhile, I'm looking for anything that might hurt my family or kill us, or just trying to make sure we're not getting lost in the woods, and that determines my course. That's something like what Paul is saying here, when in verse 1 he says, seek the things that are above. That word seek, when he says seek the things that are above, he's using much the same language, even the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 when he says, don't be anxious saying, what are we to eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What your mind is, is fixated on, what you're looking for on that hike if you focus on the wrong things, you might miss what's important. If you're just after whatever colorful thing you can find, you're going to get way off the trail. But if you focus on the important things, all these things will be added to you as well. In these verses in Colossians, we are called to focus on, to orient our course on the things that are above, the eternal kingdom of God. But it's not just a matter of, of gritting your teeth and, and working harder to really, really focus on Jesus every day. That's, that's actually not how it works. And that's encouraging, I hope, as you'll see. No, what we're going to see in these verses is that because of what's already true of you in Jesus, because you belong to Christ, united to Him, you are able to focus on the most important thing and to set your course in response to that. 
So the first thing we see, the encouragement, the truth that helps us to fix our mind and to set our mind on the things that are above is that in Christ you have been raised. These verses today are a continuation of the ones that came before where Paul was talking to us about how we died with Christ. And we saw in the past few weeks that because we died to the world, the world has no authority over us. Its rules, its superstitions, its taboos, its way of doing things, its whole value system are just empty words to the follower of Christ. Because we've died to that world and we've been born again into a new world. But notice in verse 1, the way Paul words it, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ. That if is not an if of possibility. You know, we use if in different ways. Well, if it rains this afternoon, we're going to have to change our plans. It might rain, it might not. If it does, this is our plan. But there's another way that we use if that basically means since or because. Well, if everybody's here, we might as well leave. Well, if that's the way you're going to be about it, then I think we need to have a conversation. You know, it's an if that means since or because. And that's what we've got here. Since you've been raised with Christ, Paul's not speaking about our our physical resurrection because that's yet far off. Maybe. That's still ahead of us. Let's go. That's still somewhere ahead of us. He's talking about how as a Christian, we are united to Christ and experience his resurrection. The Bible, and you have to understand this concept to understand so much of the Old and New Testament. The Bible uses the phrase, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus, again and again when it describes the blessings that we receive. In Him, we're forgiven. In Him, we have resurrection. In Him, we are made holy. In Him, we are blessed. And, and the way that there's different ways to understand this idea of what it means to be in Christ. This idea of being united to Christ is so central to Scripture, we have to be able to understand it when we see it. Now, one way I could understand it is if I take my pen and put it in my book. I give you my book. Where's my pen? You have it. Because once my pen is in my book, where my book goes, my pen goes with it. But think of it this way. I want you to think of the story of David and Goliath. Familiar story to many of us. And perhaps as you hear that story, and I say, well, what's the point of the story of David and Goliath? And you think, well, David trusted God, and so he fought this giant, and and, and God, uh, if I trust God and and work in his name, I can defeat the giants that he sends in my life. And and that's, that's not the story of David and Goliath. If we were to go back and look at the whole story, we we would need to familiarize ourselves with this idea of being in someone, being united. To someone. Because what happened was in the ancient Near East, very often as these armies line up, they recognized it made very little sense for all of us to die in this battle. Why sacrifice all these lives when we can instead take one man from each side? And if it's really our gods that are controlling the battle, then let them work through the man that we have each chosen. And let's let those two men come to the line and fight. And whoever wins, that's the side that wins. And that's what happens in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath comes forward and he says, you send out your champion to come and fight me. And if I win, then you will be our slaves. But if you win, then we will be your slaves. 
And David was the one who stepped forward because no one else dared do it. Not even Saul the king who should have represented his people. David instead stepped forward and said, I'll fight it. And David and Goliath went forward. And and if David had lost, if Goliath had defeated David, then all the men of Israel who, who never stepped foot on that battlefield in that moment, they lost with David. But that's not what happened, right? When David defeats Goliath, then all those men of Israel who were cowering in their tents, ashamed to even show their face before Goliath, they received a victory that they had not earned or won because they were counted with David. The victory of David was given to them. That's what it means to be in Christ. When he dies, you died. When he rose again, you received a resurrection that you did not earn. And when he is raised up in glory, you will be blessed eternally in him. My brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate the importance of this idea in the Bible and in your salvation. In Romans, 8, or Romans 6, we see it again. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and you've confessed that truth and united yourself to Him, the other side of that sacrifice is the resurrection. Just as surely as you receive the death of Christ, you also receive the benefits of the resurrection of Christ. And that's what Paul goes on to say in the next verse of Romans 6. He says, because of that... Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's what we're seeing here in Colossians. Since it's true that you're raised to a new life, don't keep your mind stuck in the old life as if you're still there. Whether it's addictions, immorality, fear, pride and self-righteousness, trusting your own morality to save you. Religious obsession with rules and practices. These things are not from above. They are part of what is past. They are of the earth. They are part of the life that you died to. Now what's very important to see and understand here is the verb tense that Paul uses. He says, you have been raised. Since you have been, it already happened. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of a movie that at least in the first service, I found out a surprising number of people were a big fan of it. It's a children's movie, an animated movie called Rio, and it's about a blue macaw who, uh, who was raised up in Minnesota uh, from a hatchling, and he never learned to fly because he just was raised in a house. And he, he's done amazing things. He pushes himself on a skateboard. He can kick a soccer ball through a little goal. He can even make some weird toast thing that they make up north that I will never understand. Uh, he can do all these things, but one thing Rio doesn't do is he doesn't fly. He's not injured. He has wings. He's just never learned to fly and therefore believes he can't. And part of the plot of the story is a series of uh, crazy events result in him being far from home. And, and he's surrounded by these other birds and they, they're baffled. Why aren't you flying? You are a bird. You have wings. And he says, I can't. And their job is to convince him, no, it, it's not that you can't, you won't. You have everything you need. They're trying to convince him to live a life consistent with what's already true of him. He doesn't need to sprout wings 
He has them. Christian, being raised to a new life in Jesus is not a goal that you need to pursue. You being raised to a new life in Jesus is a reality that you need to live out. And Paul is saying to the child of God, you have wings, fly. Don't keep walking around, but live consistent with what's already true of you. You have already been raised with Christ. Don't live with your mind set on the things of this world. Turn your focus to the life that you now live in Christ. And so I say to you, in verse, as Paul says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Don't be like the bird who has to look around for bus tokens when he wants to get across town. You have wings. Why would a child of God let their hopes rise and fall according to the NASDAQ index or to the real estate market or to political polls and election results or to the number on a scale or to the image they see in a mirror? These are not the things of your new reality. These are things of earth. Our minds are to be fixed on things above because we already are alive in that new kingdom. Now, I'm not exhorting you to stop caring about the world and everything in it. That's a false understanding of these words. It was not a coincidence or without reason that we sang this morning, this is my father's world. To my listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is our father's world. And since you've been raised with Christ, you are now awakened and able to see how the kingdom of God is at work all around you in every opportunity, in every conversation, in every vocation, in every moment. Set your mind on the things above, not on how the world would value this or view this or approach this. But where Christ is seated at the right hand of God in power. That lets you prioritize if we are living as a part of God's eternal kingdom already, if we've already been raised into that life, then the reality of God's rule and God's reign needs to guide us. Why let your loves and your fears, your plans and your values be determined by a world that you've already died to and which in itself will not last? This is what the Apostle John meant in 1 John 2 when he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The, uh, the early Christian author, Augustine, Augustine, I'll let you debate how to say it. Described how there's in every city there are two cities. Two cities coexisting with one another. There is the city of God and the city of man. And so as we look out on our world, it's not that the physical things are, are, are passing away and only super spiritual things will last forever. No. In, in every field, in, every, in medicine, in education, in government, in everything we do, the city of man and the city of God are competing and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life 
and inappropriate desires. All these things are the things that John says are going to pass away until only the city of God remains. This is my Father's world. His promises still stand to heal the past and then at last redeem this groaning land. And what Paul is saying, you've already been born into that new city, that new world, that new kingdom. Live according to that. Child of God, you've been raised in Christ. The next thing we see in these verses is not just what has already become true, but what is now true in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The word hidden can mean at least two different things that are true in this passage. In one case, we can speak of something as being hidden away as secure, as safe, like the psalmist does in Psalm 17. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So I say to you, child of God, You who believe in Christ and have taken refuge in Him, He guards and protects you from eternal harm. He watches over you so that not a hair can fall from your head apart from His loving care and His will. He ensures that all things work together for your good. Your life is hidden, secure in Christ. But there's another meaning of that word hidden that I think is true here. To Christians hearing this message and thinking... Yeah, sure, Pastor, that that sounds nice about being raised into this new kingdom and thinking about the things that are above and seeing the kingdom of God everywhere. But when I go home, I got a lot of poopy diapers to change or I got a whole stack of homework to do. Or, you know, on Monday morning, I go back to a job that is boring and thoroughly unspiritual in every way. And I'm just trying to get to the end of the day. Pastor, I'm shy and I'm insignificant and I blend into the crowd. And I don't make a difference on people. Pastor, I am too sinful for this to apply to me. And when we speak of being hidden in Christ in God, that is assuring you that your present reality doesn't tell the whole story. Who you are is more than who you seem to be right now. You can rejoice in that. Just as a seed hidden in the ground, unimpressive and small, will someday grow into a mighty tree. You are hidden in Christ. And not all is as it seems on the outside. In fact, the most true and most real things about you are yet to be seen. We see it described like this in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It's hidden. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. What we will be has not yet appeared. We are still hidden with Christ. We are living in an incomplete state under construction. And remember, this is another reason Paul is giving in Colossians for us to set our mind on things above. Why would being hidden in Christ move us to set our mind on things above? as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
We set our minds on things above, fixing our eyes on what is unseen because we ourselves are yet unseen. We're a part of that hidden reality that is still breaking forth. The eternal real you is hidden with Christ in God. And in the same way, the reality that matters, the world that you and I should live for is not the one necessarily that appears before your eyes, but the one that God calls you to, that he has promised is true. Does that mean, pastor, that I then need to spend all my time praying, meditating, going to worship, doing holy spiritual church things? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the values of God's kingdom and the work of building God's kingdom are present all around you. And that's what you need to focus on. So when raising a child, is your goal, is your objective, is your focus, is your mindset on helping that child to become popular and trendy or maybe just less annoying than they are right now? Or are you trying to raise them up and shape them with godly character and a scriptural worldview? Is your money that you have spent on trying to impress other people or to make yourself more comfortable? Or is God's kingdom in mind as you make your budget? Are you choosing your friends and who you spend your time with based on what they can offer you? Well, these people can help me network. These people are popular and I'll look good by association. These people have a lot of money that they like to spend and I want to be near that. Or are your friendships and your time built upon the idea of how we can build one another up in love and in good deeds. Who are you equipped to minister to? Who makes you more Christ-like? You are hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, live for that unseen reality, not for the things of today. So in calling us to set our mind on the things above, Paul points to what already happened. You have been raised already. This is already true. He points to what's true right now, where you stand right now. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And finally, he points to what will be true at the end. In Christ, you will be glorified. In verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What we see here is that just as we are hidden, Christ too is not yet fully revealed. We talk about Jesus as King. We talk about Jesus as Lord. Earlier in Colossians, Paul described Jesus as the one who not only made the universe, but whose very word and power holds existence together. But let's, let's be very candid for a moment. We don't see that, do we? I mean, that, that's not really how things look to our uncritical human eyes. What Scripture says is true about the work of God in creating the world and sustaining it, and what's true of God ruling and guiding history, and what's true about God answering prayer and being involved in our lives, all of that is easily explained away by science, by history, by psychology, or by whatever the glory of Christ is still hidden from our eyes in many ways. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, he says, You've crowned him with glory and honor, 
putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of the control of Jesus. That's great. But I love what the author of Hebrews says next. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see the glory of Christ yet, but we will, and that's the promise. One day the veil will be removed. That's what the word revelation means. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation, because it's revealing, removing the veil, because it describes the, the trials and the difficulties of the people of God throughout history as they are persecuted and as they are uh, mistreated and as there's horrible things happening in history. The book of Revelation pulls the veil back and says, but look what's going on. Look what's happening behind all this. God is in control. God is on his throne in his throne room. God is at work. Jesus is ruling and reigning and fighting. And one day, the faith will be sight. One day, what we trust to be true, according to God's word, will be visibly true, not just by faith, but to all who are able to see. As Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, the whole world will see to be true what God has asked us to believe in faith today. That's what Paul is calling here the appearing of Jesus. When Christ, who is your life, appears, His becoming visible, when His will is done on earth just as it is in heaven, and so the promise for you, dear Christian, dear child of God, the promise in verse 4 is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. When He is seen to be all that He is, when He is glorified, then you too amazingly, inexplicably, stunningly, graciously will be glorified with Him. And that should lead you to set your mind on things above. Why? Because of real estate. Let's end the sermon there. No, <laughs> I'm not trying to sell you anything. What I want to talk about is a real estate purchase from approximately 2,500 years ago. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah had probably one of the hardest jobs of his day. He was a prophet. God was speaking to him, revealing things to him, and telling him to go tell other people. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because his message was no fun. Okay? He was in Jerusalem and in, in Judea among God's people in a time when Babylon was coming in to destroy them. And all the other prophets were going around being like, it's okay. God's going to rescue us. God's going to deliver us. You just wait. And God gave Jeremiah the message to go around and say, no, they're lying. That army is going to come in. It's going to burn us to the ground. It's going to destroy the temple. And it's going to carry us away. The ones that survive are going to be carried away into exile. Jeremiah wasn't very popular with his audience. And yet, there is a moment we see in Jeremiah in his, in his prophecies where he's actually in the city of Jerusalem. 
The army of Babylon has surrounded the city and they're starving out the people. They've already decimated the countryside and they're starving the people in Jerusalem. And, and Jeremiah has already been told by the Lord and is telling the people, this is the end. This is it. We're not getting out of here. And then God tells him to buy a field in Jeremiah 32. The word of the Lord came to me, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Okay, understand what Jeremiah's cousin is doing here. He owns a field that has probably just been burned by the Babylonian army. He's not sure he's going to make it out of here. He's trying to scrape together a few coins just to buy what little food is left in the city. And so he comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, you want to buy this field that I own that isn't worth anything anymore? And if you're Jeremiah and you know that not only is this not going to end well, but everybody's going to be carried away into captivity and, and nobody's even going to see this land again for 70 years. You pretty motivated to invest in real estate? No. And look what God says in Jeremiah 32, 9. And I bought the field. I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. And then for four more verses, he goes on with the technical details of buying this field and sealing the deed and getting it stamped and notarized and taking it out before the public so they can all know that I bought this field that's worth pretty much nothing. Why would God tell him to do this? And what on earth does it have to do with us? Well, God goes on to explain in Jeremiah 32, 14 and 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel. That's like Tupperware, you know, it's just going to keep it safe and secure so that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God is telling Jeremiah in his day to invest in a future reality that he is promising. An investment that at the time felt foolish. At the time seemed to be a waste. At the time seemed to be ignorant and backwards. But God had promised a future and he told his servant to invest in that, to set his mind on that, to live for that. And he tells us, likewise, to live in a way that only makes sense in the future that he has promised. If lands weren't going to be bought again in Israel, then that purchase is nothing. But God said, seal it up. It's going to be worth something someday in the future I've prepared. And he tells you, live in a way that only makes sense in the future glory that is awaiting you. Why would you forgive an enemy when revenge is so much tastier? Why would you invest in things that offer you no return financially when you can invest in your family and yourself and comfort and, and, and delight? Live in a way that only makes sense if what God has said is true in the future is in fact true. What aspect of your life should you grow and develop and support? Is it the things that will fade away? The temptations, the weaknesses, the distractions? Or should you invest in the character building and the relationships and the things that will exist for eternity? 
These things don't make sense always. They feel ignorant. They feel backwards. They feel like a waste. But God has promised to His children, you will be glorified. You will. Live for that. Set your mind on that. Invest in that. I have tried to be very clear about one thing in this sermon, and in case I haven't been, I'm going to come at it one more time. I am not saying, and Scripture is not saying, set your mind on things above, and if you are successful in doing that, you will be raised with Christ. If you do a good job of seeking, seeking the things above and not of earth, you will be hidden in Christ. If you successfully set your mind on things above, you will be glorified with Christ when He appears. Too often that's how we live. Too often that is the gospel that is presented to us. As if the gospel is a promise of reward for those who do things right. And your reason for coming here is so that I can tell you what are the right things you need to do to attain the promise of the gospel. That's no gospel. That's not good news at all. And it makes about as much sense as if I were to go to a cemetery and stand over a grave and say, Hey, I can offer you a great diet plan that will help you live better. Makes no sense. <laughs> okay? What the Holy Spirit is teaching us in these verses, in these profound these profound, powerful, life-giving truths of, of being raised with Christ, being hidden with Christ, and being glorified with Christ, God has already given them to you as an act of grace. That is the gospel. Everything that follows, the setting your mind on things above, living for the future, investing in that reality, that's something you're able to do because of what God has already done for you. In Jesus Christ. So my friends, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted him to save you, then these things are already yours by grace. Because of what you now have and who you are in Christ, this is how you live. Not trapped in the mundane and passing and dying things of this world, but fixed on what is above what is of God. Letting those things guide you, letting them set your course letting them direct you and determine how to live. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, we will feast with him in the house of Zion in glory. Not because we've done it right, but because he has blessed us. And because of that, how then should we live? How then should we live? Let us fix our eyes on the things that are above. Join me as we pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your unfailing goodness to your people. That you have raised us with Christ. You have hidden us with Christ in you. And you will glorify us with Christ. Now, because of those things, show us what it means to live out what you have done and what you have promised. By your Spirit, give us wisdom to seek your kingdom first to seek what is above, to see the kingdom of God at work all around us and to invest in that promise, in that reality. It is with joy 
that we pray these things because we could not do them unless you had given us life and you have raised us with Christ. Thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior.